or, or turn them on, as the case may be. More and more people these days turn their Bibles on rather than open them up. But uh, whatever the case is for you, uh, let's have Matthew chapter 4 before us. And let me remind you what we are doing. We are seeking to obey the command of Christ found in Matthew 4, verse 17. And as we've seen, this command is not only found in Matthew 4, verse 17. It is the command found throughout the pages of the Bible. It is given here as a summary of what Jesus was calling for people to do. It's also used in the book of Acts as a summary of what the apostles were calling people to do. This is the call found throughout the pages of the Old Testament prophets. It's seen again in the words of Christ to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. This is the primary call of Scripture to us, namely, that we repent. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, to help us understand what it means to repent, we've been looking at a statement from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And this statement is an attempt to bring together the major teaching of the Bible on this subject so that we can have a true and trustworthy definition. Um, We don't want to think we've repented and then find out on the last day that we haven't. If we really have a heart to repent, If we really have a heart to seek after God, then we are going to want to know from God, from His Word, what true repentance looks like. And God will not leave anyone who really wants to repent in ignorance. Those who seek after God with all their hearts will find Him. And so as a church, we're seeking God on this subject of repentance, and He lovingly helps us through His Word, and He lovingly helps us through this statement in the Confession. So let's read it one more time. What is repentance? This saving repentance is an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it, with godly sorrow, detestation of it, and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit, to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. And so what is true repentance? We've seen that it's a gospel grace, a gift from God that brings us salvation, and it's only because of our Savior's death on the cross that our repentance is saving. We've seen that true repentance includes seeing our sin, acknowledging our sin, owning our sin. We've seen that true repentance includes sensing the vileness of our own sin so that our own hearts become repulsed by what we've done. We've seen that true repentance includes humbling ourselves before God, abhorring ourselves for being so rebellious and so wicked. And last time we saw that true repentance includes godly sorrow with all of those marks of godly sorrow that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 7.11. But coming to grips with our sin, acknowledging it and mourning over it, even this is not the sum of true repentance. 
That's only the beginning. This sense of how terrible your sins are, and this being sorrowful for your sins, this must prompt you to some actions. Repentance must not remain just an emotional experience for us. Repentance is more than just a feeling. Repentance requires an act of the will. You must do something if you are to repent. What must you do? But here is truth number six about repentance. Repentance includes prayer for forgiveness. Repentance includes prayer for forgiveness. Or to use the language of the confession, repentance includes prayer for pardon. Having come to some grasp of your sin, hating that sin, grieving that you've committed that sin, you now come before your holy, holy, holy God, who is also your Father through Jesus Christ, and you ask Him for forgiveness. Now wait a minute. Aren't Christians already forgiven? When we come to Christ and trust Him, aren't all of our sins, past, present, and future, all wiped away? So why must we come to God and ask for forgiveness for our sins? Uh, There are at least five important reasons why you as a forgiven Christian should still come to God and ask forgiveness for your sins on a daily basis. Five important reasons why your life of repentance should include continual goings to God to ask pardon for freshly discovered sin and freshly felt sin. Here they are. Number one, we are commanded to pray for forgiveness. We are commanded in the Bible to pray for forgiveness. And this is not a one-time thing. When Jesus was teaching His disciples how they should pray, not just once, how they should regularly pray, He taught them to include words like this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or to use a different translation, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Our Lord and Savior has commanded us to pray regularly, indeed to pray daily, that our sins would be forgiven. Second, this example is set before us in the Bible. This example is set before us in the Bible. Uh, Just one example that I'll give you tonight is David. David was the man after God's own heart. But Psalm 51, which David wrote after his sins concerning Bathsheba, It's a prayer for forgiveness. David begins that famous psalm, that famous prayer, with these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on to pray, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You might argue that David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband was so great that Psalm 51 was a special circumstance. Maybe only when we commit really major sins, then we need to go and and ask God for forgiveness again. But actually, we find these kind of prayers throughout the Psalms. 
Psalm 25, verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So not only are we commanded to pray this way, but we have this example set before us in the pages of the Bible. Uh, Number three, this is how other covenant relationships work. This is how other covenant relationships work. And I'm thinking here particularly about that other big covenant relationship in many of our lives, that of marriage. Our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. It's built on a promise. God has said to us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a promise and we are taking hold of that promise. It's a covenant relationship. But a marriage with a spouse, a relationship with a spouse is also a covenant relationship built on promises. In marriage, a husband and wife have committed to love each other through good times and through bad times. This includes the promise made before God that they will love each other despite one another's sins. In other words, my wife knows that no matter what she may do tomorrow, I will not cease to love her. I will not end the relationship. Uh, Her actions will be forgiven in the sense that I have made a promise before God that I will not break off our marriage. I also know that she loves me so much that no matter what I do, she is going to be committed to me. And this is what the promise is like from God to Christians. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven in the sense that God's commitment to us is never going to end. You can try all you want as a rebellious child to make your father stop being committed to you. He's not going to stop being committed to you. And in that sense, your sins are forever forgiven. Christ is our righteousness. And He doesn't change. However, would any of us suggest that because we've made promises to God, promises to our spouse before God, that we will never leave each other, that we will be together till death do us part, would we ever say that because that's true, we shouldn't ask our spouse to forgive us when we've done something wrong? Would we say, well, I know she's going to stay committed to me. Or I know he's still going to love me. I know that in the deepest sense, there's nothing wrong here, so I'm not going to ask forgiveness. Of course not. If I say something cruel to my wife, I know she still loves me, but I still need to make it right. I shouldn't expect her to be happy and eager to be around me until I make it right. In the same way, while God is bringing His children to heaven, when they sin against Him, they are under His fatherly displeasure. He continues to love them, and their sins are forgiven, but this love means that He is looking towards them with a grieved heart, with a view towards discipline. We should not expect our communion with God to be enjoyable. And we should not expect God's providences towards us to be full of blessing, while we are living in a way that we know is against Him, and refuse to come to Him and confess that sin and ask for His pardon. We go to God and ask forgiveness in order to restore the sweetness of our communion with Him and in order to lessen the discipline that will be required. When my children come to me with a penitent heart, when my children come to me and ask forgiveness, they are far less likely to be disciplined as severely as if they remain stubbornly unrepentant. Would you agree with that 
parents. That's typically how we discipline. Right? When our children come to us and confess their sin and acknowledge it, we are far less likely to feel the need to do great discipline than in situations where they are stubbornly rebellious. So you see, it does make good sense to God, and it makes good sense for us to go to God and to ask His forgiveness, even though we know that in Christ all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Number four, this keeps Christ and His cross near and dear to us. This keeps Christ and His cross near and dear to us. Certainly one of the reasons that God commands us to regularly pray for the forgiveness of our sins is that this brings to our mind again and again how it is that He can forgive our sins, namely, through Christ. God's great purpose is for Jesus to be exalted in our hearts. God's great purpose is for us to love His Son, to honor His Son, to cherish His Son. And we will love Jesus most when we are coming to Him daily as the Savior of our souls, pleading with Him for forgiveness of our sins. Every time we go to God for forgiveness, we are praying in Jesus' name and we are making our request through Jesus' blood. Christ is nearest and dearest to the soul of the one who most knows his own sin and seeks most regularly the pardon of God. And so this keeps Christ and his cross near to us. But then fifth, this teaches us to forgive others. This teaches us to forgive others. God commands us to regularly go to God and ask forgiveness because it reminds us every time that He is a forgiving God. And because He is a forgiving God, we should be a forgiving people. As we recognize that we are being forgiven much, it should teach us to forgive much. Jesus said, if we do not forgive others, God will not forgive us. One mark of a forgiven soul is a willingness to forgive others. We learn forgiveness and we learn how to forgive others through the daily experience of receiving fresh forgiveness from Christ each and every day. So yes, see your sin, acknowledge your sin, feel the vileness of your sin, experience godly sorrow for your sin, but then do something about it, namely Go to Christ in prayer and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Now, at this point, I need to make a very important statement. We are to practice repentance, not penance. We are to practice repentance, not penance. You see, our hearts are always prone towards penance, and we must not fall into that trap. So what is penance? Penance is when we seek to appease God's justice through some act. To put it another way, penance is when we seek to make up for our sins through some good work. Right? I acknowledge my sin. What am I going to do about it? I'm going to try and do something to make it right. I'm going to try and do something to merit God's favor back. Uh, Penance was the issue that began the Protestant Reformation. Tetzel came into town, 
claiming that if you paid money to help build a cathedral in Rome, that good work would satisfy God's justice for sins you've committed or for sins that you knew you would commit in the future. Did you lie to someone this week? Here is how you can do penance for your sin. Give an offering to the building of this cathedral. Um, Here's how to get God back on your good side. Do some good work. Give a coin to help with this building project. This is what the human heart is inclined to do. I've messed up before God. What can I do to make it right? Um, Very early on in church history, something terrible happened with our main verse. Matthew 4, verse 17. It shows how important it is that we translate the Bible accurately. Instead of translating Matthew 4.17 as it is in the Greek, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jerome translated this verse into Latin, he translated it as do penance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so there in what was the chief Bible for the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years, really for 1500 years, in the Vulgate, When they read Matthew 4.17, it did not say repent. It said do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What had happened is this. During the persecution of Christians in the first centuries, some professing Christians renounced their faith under pressure. As they thought about death by lion, or burning at a stake, or being publicly raped or being dragged to death by bulls, in the face of that, there were some Christians who decided in the moment to declare Caesar to be a god and to sacrifice to Caesar as a god. And in this way, they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and and saved their earthly lives. However, many of these people, after going through that trial, came back to their churches and said, I'm still a Christian. I just choked under pressure. My, my faith wasn't as strong as I thought. And when I saw the lions in the Colosseum, I just couldn't go through with it. I, just, I had to say what they wanted me to say. But I'm still a follower of Christ. What should a church do in that circumstance? Should a church in that circumstance allow someone who has rejected Christ to return and be a part of their church membership? What if they say they've repented? And that they are sorry for having sacrificed to Caesar. This was a huge controversy in the early church. If you want to learn more about it, um, go on Google tonight. Look up Donatism or the Donatist controversy. But for now, think about a church that chose to allow these fallen Christians back into their membership. How could they know if the person was truly repentant? How could they know that this Christian who choked under pressure and sacrificed to Caesar, how could they know that this person was now truly repentant and that their faith was real? Repentance is something that happens in the heart. So how could that church know in order to accept that person back into membership? This same issue arose for Christians who committed grave sins, Christians who committed adultery, Christians who committed murder or had an abortion. And in the first century, there were churches trying to figure out, how do we know whether this person is truly repentant? How do we know if this person should be brought back into church membership? Well, because of this, pastors began to come up with outward acts 
for people to do to show that they were inwardly repentant. Typically, it looked like this. The Christian would go to the bishop of his town. So the bishop was the head pastor of the town. And the person would go and confess his sin to the bishop. I I choked under pressure. I sacrificed to Caesar. The bishop would then tell the churches meeting in that particular town, and particularly the pastors leading those churches, he would say, okay, this person is now going to do penance. And this meant in the early church that for a period of one to three years, that person would not be allowed to receive the Lord's Supper. The person was welcome and indeed expected to be in church, but when it was time for the unbaptized to be dismissed so that the rest of the church could have the church fellowship meal, that person was expect to leave, expected to leave as well. This person was told to put on coarse clothes, to stain himself with ashes. Sometimes this person was instructed to eat and drink nothing more than bread and water. And if the person did all this for the allotted time, then it was said to be evidence of sincere repentance in the heart. And that person could now be received back into the fellowship of the church as a true Christian. Well, over time, this practice was transformed more and more until it began to take on this idea of doing these things to make satisfaction for your sin. Rather than just showing how sincere your repentance was, people and even church leaders began to view these acts as a way of making up for the sin that you've committed. Rather than just looking to Christ and the cross as the sacrifice for your sins, they began to say, well, you have to pay for your sins in some way. Today, it looks like this. A Catholic priest might tell you to pray three Hail Marys and to give alms to the poor, and that will make satisfaction for your sin. That's penance. And Mount Hermon, you need to know that we as human beings are tempted to do this in our own way. Rather than trusting Jesus and Jesus alone as the sacrifice for our sin, when we see that we've messed up again, when we are feeling the weight of our sin upon us, there is something evil in the human heart that says, let me earn God's favor back. Let me make it right in this way. And this is dangerous because nothing we can do will ever make up for an offense against God and His law. And for us to do penance and to try and make things right with God on our own is to blaspheme Christ and deny the gospel. Christ is everything we need. Uh, Richard Owen Roberts says, It can be dogmatically declared that the concept of purchasing divine blessing or paying for sins by any human acts whatsoever has no place in biblical Christianity. And that's exactly right. We are not to do penance. We are to go to Christ and to Christ alone and ask for forgiveness depending on His blood and His death for us. So let's watch our hearts and let's always, always, always seek forgiveness from God on the basis of Christ's atoning work alone because all other ground is sinking sand. So repentance, not penance. Okay, our seventh truth about repentance is this. Repentance includes prayer for strength of grace. Repentance includes prayer 
for strength of grace. Repentance includes asking God that His grace would be strong in you. Uh, Repentance includes not only asking God for forgiveness, but then asking God to help you keep from committing that sin again. Asking God to make you pure and to give you a stronger faith and a stronger obedience. Uh, Earlier, we heard David cry out to God in Psalm 51 for forgiveness. But David didn't just cry out for forgiveness. Just as much as he cries out, God, blot out my sin in Psalm 51, he also cries out, God, help me not be this way. Save me from ever doing anything like this again. Psalm 51, 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51, 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Repentance and faith are inseparable. One always brings the other along with it. True repentance means that you look to God in faith and cry out for His power to be at work in you to make you holy. True repentance recognizes that you are dependent upon God for any virtue in your life. If you're going to grow in honesty or in patience or in faithfulness or in purity or in gentleness or in compassion or in love or in any other virtue, it will only be because of God's power in you. And therefore, the Christian cries out to God daily. Not only God blot out my sins, but God help me to be holy and help me never to do this thing I've done again. Let me ask you to examine your prayer life tonight. How much of your time spent in prayer is spent crying out to God for purity and for holiness Yes, praise God in your prayers. Yes, intercede for others in your prayers. Lift up this church and our leadership here. Pray for our land. Pray for our civic leaders. Pray for your protection. Pray for missionaries. Pray for persecuted Christians. But let us be constant in praying for purity and holiness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Make me like Jesus should be a constant theme in your prayers. As you are repenting of sin, pray specifically. So for example, if you're repenting of anger in your life, pray specifically, not only God blot out my sins of anger, but God Give me a spirit of gentleness. Pray for gentleness around those people that tend to anger you. Right? God, I got angry because for some reason when I'm around so-and-so, we just, we just rub. Father, help me when I'm around that person to have an extra sense of gentleness in my life. Pray for gentleness in those circumstances that tend to annoy you. So I use the illustration a lot of being at the, the red light, right? And the red light turns green and the people aren't going and you're waiting, you're waiting and the person's not going. If you know that's a circumstance that really annoys you, pray. God, when that circumstance comes, give me a gentle spirit. Identify specifically what is bringing you to sin and pray specifically for God's help. Pray especially for the condition of your heart. Pray that, for example, if you're struggling with anger... 
Pray that your heart would dwell in gentleness. Pray that your very demeanor and countenance would be one of gentleness. In other words, don't just ask for holiness in general and move on to praying for something else. Don't say, God, make me like Jesus, and then that's it for your holy prayer, and the rest of it is all other things, interceding for others and praying for missionaries. No, pray specifically for holiness. Wrestle with God in your prayers. Lord, I need more patience. Lord, when I'm around that person, the gossip just kind of comes. Will you help me not to do that when I'm around that person? Pray specifically for your soul. You can't pray this specifically for anybody else. You know yourself more than you know anybody else. But that means you get to pray in a way that other people can't pray for you. Wrestle with God in your prayers. Dig in to what it is you want and make your case to Him. Now, we come to the last part of our definition of repentance. And this is it. It's truth number eight. Repentance includes a new resolve to please God. A new resolve to please God. Remember, I said true repentance includes an act of the will. Repentance includes action. After having seen your sin and felt the weight and shame of it, and having grieved over it, and you've come to God and you've asked God forgiveness for it, and you've pleaded with Him to make you pure, what do you do when you get off your knees? Well, You should get off your knees with a fresh resolve to be holy. Not, let go and let God. That's terrible theology. I don't know who came up with that. Don't, don't put that bumper sticker on your car. Let go and let God is terrible theology. Right? Um, rather, God will make you holy through your thoughts, your willing, your choices that you make when it comes back to that person that you rub against. You can't just say, well, I'm going to let go and let God and see what happens. You have to say, I am going to be gentle. Right? When you get off your knees, you must then resolve afresh to live a life pleasing to God You must get off your knees believing that you are forgiven of your sin because you have God's word on that matter. And you are to get off of your knees believing that you have the strength to overcome temptation because you have God's word on that matter too. So believing the word of God, you can resolve in your heart, I will live a life of obedience. So continuing to use the example of anger, what kind of resolve... Would you have? I resolve to keep a careful watch over my heart this day and to quell in my soul any breakout of annoyance or frustration. I will kill anger in my heart the moment it begins to show itself so that it never comes close to coming out of my mouth because I'm killing it way before it gets there. That's the kind of resolution you should make. And you should make that resolution. And you should make that resolution believing that God has the power to help you keep that resolution, and then you should keep it. This new resolution in your heart should be both particular and universal. Particular and universal. You should resolve afresh, believing God for the strength to not commit again that sin you've just repented of, but to pursue its opposite. So, I will not lie. I will speak the truth. I will not be impatient, but I will learn to deny myself and wait quietly. 
whatever the particular sin you've just confessed, resolve against that particular sin in your heart. But then one of Satan's greatest ploys is to get you so focused on one sin in your life that it gets replaced by ten more. And you think you're winning because you no longer commit that one sin. Many a person has claimed repentance because they found victory over a sin while they just replaced it with others. We see this happen as people older. Often the sins of youth and the sins of middle age are not the same sins. And yet sometimes folks of middle age think, I've gotten holier because they've conquered certain sins and don't realize they've actually just replaced them with different sins. And therefore, it is essential that we not only get off of our knees, resolving afresh, I will in God's power beat this specific sin, but we must come up with a universal resolve. I will seek to be holy in word, in speech, in thought, in deed. Indeed, I want to live as a child and ambassador of God in this world. I want to be free of all sin. We can be sure of this. If you go through all of these steps but immediately go back into the world and you keep committing the same sins over and over again without any real fight against them. That is not true repentance. Don't get me wrong. There are some sins that you can truly repent of, but in God's providence, He allows them to continue to defeat you for His own purposes. Have you ever experienced that? You're thinking, I just repented of this sin yesterday. And then I repented of it the day before. And the day before, here I am again, God. You ever been there? Right? You start wondering, is my repentance real? Is my repentance real? Well, if you're there again, but it's not for a lack of fighting, right? You're fighting tooth and claw against that sin and you, you, just, you just keep getting defeated. Well, sometimes God and His sovereignty allows us to be defeated that way. He puts this on our back so that we'll look up to Him. He's humbling us. He's doing something in us. But if you get off your knees and you go back into the world and you jump right back into the sin you've just confessed and you're not putting up a fight or you're not even, maybe maybe it's a half-hearted fight. You fight a little bit, but you really know I'm going to give in in a minute, right? If that's you, then that's not real repentance. A tree is known by its fruit and a repenter is known not by how many tears he sheds, Or how many penitent words he prays, but whether or not his life actually changes. Says Spurgeon, "'Tis not enough to say we're sorry and repent, and then go on from day to day, just as we always went." He says, "...many people are very sorry and very penitent for their past sins. You hear them talk. Oh, they say, I deeply regret that I ever should have been a drunkard. I sincerely bemoan that I should ever have fallen into that sin. I deeply lament that I should ever have done so. And then they go straight home. And when certain o'clock on Sunday comes, you find them at the drink again. And yet such people keep saying they have repented. I have often thought it was a very beautiful instance, says Spurgeon, showing the power of repentance, which a pious minister once related. He had been preaching on repentance and had in the course of his sermon spoken on the sin of stealing. On his way home after the sermon, a laborer came alongside of him and the minister observed that he had something under his frock. He told the man that he need not accompany him further, but the man persisted. And at last the man confessed, 
I have a spade under my arm, which I stole from that farm up there. I heard you preaching about the sin of stealing, and I must go and put it back again. That was sincere repentance, which caused him to go back and replace the stolen article. It was like those South Sea Islanders of whom we read, who stole the missionaries' articles of apparel, stole the missionaries' furniture, everything out of their houses. But when they were savingly converted, they brought them all back. But many of you say you repent, yet nothing comes of it. It's not worth the snap of a finger. People sincerely repent, they say, that they should have committed a robbery or that they have kept a gambling house. But they are very careful that all the proceeds shall be laid out to their heart's best comfort. True repentance will yield works meet for repentance. It will be practical repentance. Mount Hermon, that's, that's the point I'm making here at the end. If repentance is real and true, it should bear fruit in your life. There should be real change that happens. The same sins should not typically be defeating us over and over and over again. And if they are, it must not be without a great deal of fighting against them. If in the providence of God you cannot completely cut off a sin from your life, at least show that you are fighting tooth and claw against it, longing for the day when Christ will make you clean through and through. Now, Next time, we will look at what this practice of repentance should look like in the normal, everyday life of a Christian. You see, we've taken a good bit of time to make sure we understand what repentance is. But I would not want you to be overwhelmed. I want you to see that this can be a part of your everyday life, that this can be something that you practically experience and do. Much of what we've been describing over a month of sermons can happen in just a precious few minutes in your daily life. You can see your sin. You can acknowledge it. You can grieve over it. You can feel its vileness. You can confess it to God. You can ask His forgiveness. You can pray for His help. You can resolve to live differently. And all of that can happen in just a few minutes of time. And so I don't want you to think we spent all this time on this. Oh no, this is overwhelming. I could never do all this. No, this is something that can become very natural. A a, a true, regular part of a Christian's daily life. And so I want us to come back to this because I want to talk about what this looks like in the everyday life of a Christian. And then more than that, I want us to talk about corporate repentance, what it looks like for a church to repent, what it looks like for a community or even a nation to repent together. Because of the way the calendar has fallen, um, we're not going to come back to this until January 11th. Do you think you can remember (laughs) till January 11th? I I do want to return because I want to talk about those things I just mentioned. And yet it will be a little while uh, before we do actually come back. So just hold on to your outlines. Put them somewhere safe. And uh, in January we will return to them. Let me close tonight by reading one more time what repentance is from the London Baptist Confession. This is the paragraph we've been unfolding for Four four sermons as an unpacking of Matthew 4.17. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, a gospel grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, 
doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace, with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So Mount Hermon, let us continually be about the practice of repenting because the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand. Let's pray.